welcome to Should I Just Quit My Job? I'm your host, Maricela Herrera, and I'm very happy to have you here with me today. Thank you so much for taking time and listening to these conversations. And really, really, really thank you to those of you who have reached out to me. I know this sounds corny, but it really makes a difference for me when I know that y'all are listening and that this podcast is making an impact in your life. I really can't thank you enough. It's been a weird few weeks in my life. Um, I know I shared a mini-sode last week, so you got quite an update on where my head is at when it comes to purpose and joy. I need to do another one um, more on the topic of confidence and some of the conversations I've had, not on the show, but just outside of this, but that are related and relevant to what's going on with my life, which is trying to figure out my next steps. Because you know what, guys? Fuck, this is complicated. I'm not ever going to say I have it figured out because if one thing I've realized is we will never have it figured out. You might have it figured out for a few days or a few weeks or a few months or a few years. But we're always constantly figuring out because the only constant in this world is change. That's what we're here for. That's what we're doing. We're changing. We're evolving. We're going with the flow. So I'm trying to do that. But God damn it, it's hard. Sometimes we really just need a break. And I keep faulting myself for having taken such a long break. You know, I'm, I'm seven-ish, seven, eight months into this break. And... Sometimes I feel like I'm not doing enough. Sometimes I feel like I'm doing a lot of the wrong things, which is why when I hear from people about the podcast and how it makes an impact, I'm like reassured that I'm doing right things. Um, but I wish I could stop that voice in my head that keeps telling me taking a break is wrong. And... I'm going to talk about that with my guest today. And today you'll hear from Daisy Auger Dominguez, who is, honestly, she's just awesome. So Daisy has quite the career. All the big names you can think of, Disney, Viacom, Google, all of those are on her resume. <laughs> she started her career as a credit analyst, but then life brought her into a diversity, equity, and inclusion role. So most of the people who listen to this podcast are familiar with the term DEIB, but just in case, it stands for diversity, equity, inclusion, and belonging. Daisy was for many, many, many years in roles furthering DEIB within companies and then decided that she wanted to do something different, still related, but 
more, which I always love. And she became the chief people officer at Vice Media. Big, big role. Interesting company. So media, entertainment, but like Vice has a very specific flavor, so to speak. I remember being familiar with Daisy before she was at Vice. But then while she was at Vice, she spoke at Elevate's Mobilized Women Summit. But then time passed, right? Like life goes on and, and, and I kept following Daisy's career on LinkedIn. And last year, we got to speak at a panel for Latina Equal Pay Day. Imagine this. We were four Latinas, different areas, and actually five with the moderator, who was Heidi Mendez, who I love, and she organized a panel. But two of the four speakers, me and Daisy, when we introduced ourselves, we had something in common. We were both on a break. I was calling it my... I don't know what I was calling it, actually. I wasn't calling it a thing. I was my kind of an identity crisis I was having at that point because it was, you know, a few months into having having left. But Daisy, Daisy had it planned out. She was calling it her radical sabbatical. And I loved that she was very public about taking this radical sabbatical. She was intentional. She was open she owned her narrative and shared on LinkedIn, on other platforms, but she was sharing what was she was doing and how this was evolving. It was interesting to see someone who was in this position that everyone, like people look up to, that people admire. And she was like, I'm taking some time for me. I love it. I honestly loved it. At that point, I was like, we have to do this. You have to be on my podcast. And thankfully, we made it happen. So today, you'll hear from her. I know I told you a little bit about her story in this intro, but I want you to hear it from her. We go and start way back when, when she was starting off her career, and we talk about all the things, including her book, Inclusion Revolution, which is fantastic. If you are a DEIB nerd, you will love it. And her second book, Burnt Out to Lit Up, which will be out soon. And a lot of other things. We talk about things we learn for the first time and how we can demystify a lot of the corporate speak and a lot of these like unstated rules of the business world. And make everything more accessible for people who might not have that. I know I didn't know a lot of the things I learned in the last, you know, whatever, 20, 25 years. Anyway, I think what she's done is really, really powerful. And I hope we can all learn from that. Because sometimes we do need to take a break. And sometimes we do need to take a pause and breathe and then step into our power and the new life we want to create, whatever that looks like. I can't wait for you to listen to this. 
please let me know what you think. Like I said, you can find me on LinkedIn. You can find me on Instagram at quitmyjobpod or TikTok at quitmyjobpod. I post some videos from the show as well as some random stuff for me. And you can reach me at quitmyjobpod at gmail.com. I really do love hearing from you. So thank you again. See you next time. I want to start with going way back when. Because I know you started your career as a credit analyst. Yes. And then moved into HR, which I found interesting. But why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. I mean, part of it is part of it is the necessity of getting a job <laughs> and um, and being at the right place at the right time. As you know, I was uh, I, I was born in New York City, but I was raised in the Dominican Republic. And I, that's where I learned English because I studied at an international school. I grew up with my grandparents. I moved to the States when I was a junior in high school. And then I you know, went to college, Bucknell University, NYU, graduate school, master's in public policy. And through it all, you know, I was just sort of trying to find myself like most young people. And I had a family that was incredibly supportive, but didn't really have role models professionally that I could follow in like, I'm going to be a lawyer because my uncle's a lawyer. Or I'm going to be a banker because such and such is a banker, right? I didn't have that. What I had was a family that invested everything they had in me so that I could, as my grandmother used to say, be a professional, right? That was what my grandmother said. They see that's going to be a professional someday. And I was like, I didn't know what that was. And, and I say that because by the time that I got to Moody's Investor Service, which is where I became my, my first job, right? That was really where I cut my teeth as a credit, uh, as a credit ratings analyst. Um, I had an undergraduate degree in international relations and women's studies, a master's degree in public policy, a fellowship in public affairs, because I had done the Coral Fellows program right before that. And, and I was finding my way into what looked like a public service career, because that's mm -hmm. really what was moving me. But financially and practically, I need I I needed to pay loans, right? I you know I had so much had been invested in me, and there was there's always been you know I think part of it is being an immigrant, the child of immigrants, Latina. You know you, we can call in all of our identities right now, right? Um, all of this, I don't I don't think of it as weight, but it certainly does feel heavy. Um, this, this sense of, well, I have to do right by my family, which means that I have to do something practical and the government roles, the public service roles and nonprofit roles that were available to me then really seemed beautiful, but they didn't seem like they were going to help me pay off my loans and not be a burden to my family, which were, which were two priorities for me. And so lo and behold, of my father, who just retired a year ago from being a doorman at the Grand Hyatt Hotel, had a good friend, Ali Sistani, who worked at Moody's Investor Service. And over a family barbecue, my dad kind of complaining, like my kid hasn't, you know, started any jobs. I don't know what's going on with her. And I don't think he was complaining, but I think he was worrying as most parents do. Yeah. And, you know, and Ali just looked at him and said, hey, we hire young people like Daisy with masters in public policy, public administration. 
um, you know, give me her resume. And so that's how I landed at Moody's as a credit risk analyst. Maricela, I didn't even know what a credit risk analyst was. (laughs) I did not know this field existed. When I interviewed, I was, you know, they always say you are who you are, right? I was just as honest as I am now. And, you know, and I, I said it in a very professional way when they asked me, what I understood of the role. And I, you know, I remember thinking I was really smart because I said something to the effect of, I have a very rudimentary understanding of public finance, um, but if you get me the job, I will learn it, right? Because that's the hustler in you, right? Like that's, you know, that's the hard worker in you that, you know, I'm like, I'm, I can figure this out. And that's how I landed at Moody's Investor Service. It was thanks to Alisa Stani, who put my name in the hat, and thanks to Nicole Johnson, who was the manager who was hiring for this team and she was intent on diversifying a team at a time, this was in 1998, when we weren't talking about diversity the way that we speak about it now, but she had an, a, a deep commitment to ensuring that there were different voices and experiences. And so she saw something in me and it paid off. I was I, I worked at Moody's for 12 years in a whole other world. It's interesting because what you're talking about, uh, I, I hear it a lot with immigrants and first generation people that I speak to in this in this podcast. And I feel it for myself, too. Right. Like I went to business school, graduated with my MBA. And then I'm like, I have to go make all this money. Yeah. But also, I really want to do and go do something really good for the world. Mm-hmm. So this like pull and almost conflicting yeah. priorities. But even at Moody's. Was the drive to go into more of the people side because of what you were seeing kind of happening around you in, and let's say it, especially in financial services? Yeah, I mean, it's it's funny because when you look at when you look at at your career in hindsight, there's a lot of things that just become really transparent to you, and part of it is. I didn't know what I didn't know, right? I didn't, you know, I you you gravitated towards things, but I didn't know there were, could be careers in HR. I knew people did HR, but I never saw myself as an mm-hmm. HR, right? Um, like I said earlier, like diversity and inclusion was just beginning right. to become um, a function in organizations. And it was mostly, back then, it was more like on the diversity front. Like, let's just hire these black and brown people, right? Like we mm-hmm. weren't thinking about it holistically. And many banks already had, diversity recruitment programs. They didn't have holistic programs like the ones that we know now or that we aspire to build now. Um, So so yes, uh, as a credit risk analyst, um, and I was a credit risk analyst for six years at Moody's, then I I managed our global foundation, and then I went into HR um, to run the company's diversity and inclusion function. But in in those six to nine years before I did that, I was like, like you know others like you and others I was I was an employee of color I was a young woman I was someone trying to navigate a space that was very white and that was very different from what I knew and all I knew was that every day I had to somehow survive what I was walking into and and I don't mean it like it was you know the worst of times right <laughs> like you know what I'm saying I worked with really smart and kind people I learned so much um I learned about myself that I like being in intellectually challenging environments, right? Like that's 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 what excites me. When people ask me, it's like, you were a credit risk analyst. I was like, yeah, but I was learning something new every day. I was, you know, running numbers. Sure, that's not fun. But, you know, coming up with analysis and, you know, and having to um, define my opinion about something was not 
how I had been raised, right? Again, mm. I had been raised in a very loving and thoughtful family, but you know, kids don't talk, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, especially young girls. So I had not been raised with you know this notion broadly, right? I had some, I had members in my family that encouraged it because um, I was always this person, right? But I had not been raised to kind of hone an opinion on things. And here I was getting paid to do so. <laughs> you know, I was like, I was literally getting paid and I'm, you know, I've delivered a TED talk about that. And I was just sort of in the back going like, when do I speak? What do I say at first? And eventually I honed my muscles with support and, you know, and with practice. But all of that time, I noticed it wasn't just me, right? Yeah. I noticed really smart and talented black and brown men and women sidelined and marginalized, right? I, you know, I, all of a sudden people would leave and you're like, oh, we don't talk about them, right? It's like, it's, mm -hmm. you know, it's like Bruno and, you know, and kind of like, <laughs> we, don't, we don't talk about that person, right? Like that just happened. But eventually you start seeing the patterns and it's hard not to see the pattern when a pattern feels similar to you, right? So you're like, mm, like these people, like, like I knew them and the only thing that they all have in common is that they kind of look like me or they have yeah. similar backgrounds to me. So all of that um, slowly, as I started building more professional confidence, more know-how of, wait a second, like, yes, work is work and it's hard and, you know, and, and it's supposed to be arduous and our families, again, you know, it always, my theme is always about my family because, you know, our families worked really hard. Um, and, you know, it's like my dad always said, keep your head down, work harder than everybody else. Like, that's what you do. That's what you do. But then you start noticing, but not everybody does that. <laughs> I was like, wait a sec. <laughs> um, like, all these white dudes are not working that hard and they're <laughs> Right. You know, it's, you know, these, you know, there are white women that are suffering from misogyny and from sexism, but yet I'm not invited into those spaces and I'm also a woman. Right. You start watching and experiencing these moments and start thinking, wait a second, how isn't the workplace supposed to be good for all of us? <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. How do you do that? And so that's slowly how how I started getting engaged in some of that work. And it was peripherally, right? It was when I was managing the foundation, most of mm. our funding went to programs that were for young girls and boys of color in math, economics, and finance, right? And so I used to joke, I was like, we're producing the future geeks of America, right? Like that's, <laughs> that's what we do. Um, and, you know, and that's when I noticed, oh, but why do we do that? Like there was one day when someone said, well, that's really interesting that Moody's would be supporting that space. I was like, oh, this is why we had one black member of our corporate board, Cliff Alexander. And Cliff had all the power in the world because he had he had been through everything. And I and I I had a chance not only to meet Cliff, but also to dance with him at a holiday party <laughs> once. So I feel incredibly privileged. He will not remember me. But I remember feeling and seeing what power looked mm -hmm. like in spaces where where you were an only and a lonely but where you could exert power. And Cliff's power, like many ways that I'm, I'm sure I did not see, but Cliff's power as it related to the work that I was doing was that he was defining what our, where our giving went. He was making a demand because he had the power, he had the juice of a board member mm -hmm. to say, you should fund the Harlem Boys and Girls Club. <laughs> you should fund, you know, all of these organizations that at first you're like, what does it have to do with, you know, with credit risk analysis? Well but it comes from a board member. So, so then I started noticing how power 
moves in organizations and how it's taken, right? How it's, you know, how it's pushed aside, how it's granted, how it's invisible for those that don't really care, but it's really visible for those of us who mm -hmm. are like, wait a second. And so then eventually I landed this job in HR, but Maricela, I did not go into that job. Right. That was that was a job that was created. It was it was a role that was created as a result of as many roles have been created in organizations. There had been a lawsuit. One of the remediations was to create, you know, a, a function or a role or have somebody look at DEI in the organization. And I had been consistently that person that had been I had been an analyst, which was highly priced in the organization. So from an intellectual perspective, from an, you know, a, a corporate equity perspective, if you will, I was, I was one of the, you know, the top ranked folks in the organization. If you're an analyst, you're considered the smartest, right? And all of that. Um, I had worked in the foundation. I was always going to HR to advocate for the black MBA conference, the Asian MBA conference, the Latino MBA conference, right? I was that person. So mm -hmm. I was like noisy enough that knew about me but I but I hadn't turned anyone away right I, I was like you know I you know because there's a difference you and I both know it's like you can advocate for things in a way that can be seen as productive and game changing and you can also advocate for things in a way that you're right. like, that's a troublemaker we don't want her there and mm -hmm. I I always straddled that line right I was like I'm gonna push <laughs> like I'm gonna like try and get these things but I was also, and to be fair, I was also still scared. Yep. I was just like, yeah, but I still need a job. Um, and and so I I rose to the top of yep. who would do that. But I didn't want to go to HR because to me, HR was the function most loved to be hated, right? Like that's the place that you are in trouble, right? And it still is, right? I was like, that's the place that you go to where all things bad happen. Right. And so, and to be fair, I also looked at it somewhat lower because it wasn't a revenue part of the organization. I had I had been in that area. I had moved away from it, but I was still in an area as a corporate foundation that had yeah. cachet mm -hmm. and that had value. It's like HR had none of that. <laughs> and and it was partly, you know, it was partly the curiosity that drove me there, but it was also our CFO who put my name in the hat, who came to me when I, because I said no to the role, the, the after after many really? years, I was just like, I don't, I didn't say a full no, but I was just like, I don't think this is right for me. And they were all like, what's wrong with you? Like, just take this job. Um, this is going to be a VP role. You're getting promoted, blah, 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 blah. And I was like, I'm not sure. I really like where I am. I think from here, I'm going to go to a corporate foundation somewhere else. Like, this is, I found my lane, right? Like, we all think at times, like, I found my, this is what I'm going to do. <laughs> and our CFO, a woman um, who was married to a Latino, and so she had this personal uh, she had this personal interest in me of seeing me and maybe because I looked like her daughter, you know, who knows? And she came to me and she said, you know, you don't say no when I put your name on the hat. And I was just like, what is this hat you speak of? You <laughs> not know these things, right? Like all of these experiences decode corporate practices and behaviors right. to so many of us who don't know them. So, you know, in that conversation alone, she decoded so much for me what it is to be put in a, you know, in a hat, right? In a, you know, in a high potential, high profile type of role. What it is to um, have not just an advocate, but a sponsor, right? Sure. You know, like this is someone who I didn't think even knew who I was, but she'd been seeing me. She'd been watching me. She said, I'm, you know, she sat on the board of our corporate foundation. So she would watch me present. And she said, you know, you're always the one that has all the answers. You're always the one that, you know, the president looks to when, you know, there's a question that she can't answer. She's like, I've been noticing you. 
Um, so, you know, it's like, I think you should do this. And out of nowhere, what I remember was, you know, like we become so guarded and we become mm -hmm. so protective because we have to, but sometimes that is so exhausting that we just let our guard down. Right. And I let my guard down and I said, I'm afraid. Like, why well, I don't want to, like, I'm afraid that I'm going to fail because I don't know this work. I've, I've never done this work. And she just, you know, she had just all the hotspot in the world. And she was just like, if you have a problem, you come to me. <laughs> like, like, you talk to me, we'll figure this out. It's like, just say yes. And so it's like, I said yes. And, you know, and the rest has been this beautiful and complex and at times painful career that I've had. <laughs> Wow, I didn't know I didn't know the origin story. There's always an origin story. I love that that person really kind of like you said decoded these things cuz you were talking about the hat and I was like, "Oh yeah, you they put their, your name in the hat." But it's true. I mean, 20 years ago I wouldn't have had any idea. I would have been like, oh. "What hat is you the hat? What, what, hat? what is this hat you speak of? Like what are these what are these um symbols and moments yeah. and coded language that if you don't grow up talking about it and understanding it, you don't know it. And um, my one of my mentors, Dr. Ella Bell, um, she would she often would chastise me when I'm trying to like, I don't understand why this happens. And she's like, OK. And, you know, here's the thing. And she says this to many women of color. It's like, if you did not grow up talking about corporate dynamics around the dinner table, you do not know that in order yeah. to get your idea, your buy-in for your idea, you need to socialize it with several key yeah. team members before you get to the actual meeting, right? You think you're just going to go to the meeting, do all the homework <laughs> and present it. No, no, no. All this work happens before that. Mm -hmm. But no one told you that right no one gave you what I call a decoder ring right and when you go into an organization and tell you like this is how things get done here and so for me in those early years of my career it was witnessing that and getting those you know those little moments those little nuggets of like ah oh, this is how it works right like for example the first time that I needed to build a strategy for DEI my boss was the head of HR and um, and I went to her and, and you know, she's like, okay, I have to build a strategy. And she could tell that I was struggling. I didn't even ask for help. She's like, I'm going to help you. I'm going to give you my coach for a day so that she can help you build that. And I was like, what, what, what is this coach you speak of? She goes, I have an executive coach and she helps me with, the, with these matters. And, you know, she's like, and I, I do remember her saying, she's like, she's not cheap, so use her well. And, I was like, okay. uh, and so I meet this animus white friend that comes into my office and within hours I had a roadmap built out for my strategy I had a women's initiative built out I had my cheat sheet and my points of action and KPIs I had everything built out what would have taken me by myself because I would have done it by myself it would have taken me weeks and months of yeah. maybe getting it halfway to where it was we did in a day and and it wasn't just this aha moment of like, oh, this is what support was. But it was in talking to her where I realized, and as she she confided, she's like, she was our CEO's executive coach too, right? She was the, she was the executive coach of leaders everywhere. And that's when I realized nobody does this alone. They no. help. And a lot of help and expensive help that I don't have access to, right? But this is how they do it. So it's it's been those nuggets of learning throughout that I realized, okay, well, how do I democratize this, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. How do I 
how do I share this so that it's not so much harder for the next person to figure it out because it took me years to figure it out, right? How do I do that? And that's, that's what I've embedded in my career. And that's what's led me both to have the career that I've had, but also to hold on to the vision that this is actually possible for everyone. It's, it's just, it's been designed not to, but we can deconstruct it. <laughs> we can design it so that it can be easier, right? Work is always going to be hard, but easier to navigate and to understand so that then you can intelligently, right, with the right information, choose the path that you want versus constantly hitting yourself against the wall. It's fascinating. We never, I feel like we don't talk enough about the support and and I will say the supports of the different things, whether it's a sponsor, whether it's a coach, whether it's, I remember you talking at that chief panel mm -hmm. about um, when you were getting your contract and having someone who helped you negotiate yes. what you wouldn't have negotiated for yourself. Like, oh my gosh, yeah. It's, it's incredibly important and not everyone has access to it and not everyone knows that these supports exist. Well, you know, it's, it's funny because I think, and, and I, obviously my bias is, you know, it's my culture, you know, mm -hmm. culture. Um, we come from people who know how to help and support each other Yes. Right? in, in what they have and what they do, what they do. And so we do, we, you know, we do come from this, we have this rich legacy of, you know, being lifted up by others and leaning on each other and supporting each other. And so that piece, I don't think it's what's alien to us. I think it's, it's, but we don't know what we don't know. Right. right. And so it is, and, and that's why I think it, 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 we can be so much more powerful and have so much more access if we don't buy into the kind of going on it on our own. Right. And, mm -hmm. and, or, yeah. and, or only helping like a few, right. I've never bought into that. And, you know, and, and it's, it may not have always been great for my career, but, but I've always, I've always believed firmly. I was like, this is, there's enough for everybody. Mm -hmm. And, and I know what it's like to be cared for, to be protected, to be taken care of, to be pushed, you know, beyond my boundaries. I know what it's like within my home, right? And my, and my familial and friend environment. I was like, well, then how do I transfer that to my professional environment? Yeah. And, and so that's in many ways what I've always sought to do. And I do it by, you know, by talking about this, right? By sharing these stories, by doing these TED Talks, by writing my books, right? Inclusion Revolution came out of the desire to just write the things that I had experienced and that I knew to be true and that nobody else seemed to be putting out there. Right. And, yeah. you know, and, and a lot of it, you know, it's like there, the, the themes of inclusion revolution, you know, the, the, the themes are very similar around reflection, right? There's a lot of management books that talk about self-reflection. There's a lot of ma management books that talk about vision and action and some, not as many that talk about persistence, but I wanted yeah. to put it all together and then I wanted to do it across the entire employee life cycle because to me this was the book that I wish I had had when I started right and so that's mm -hmm. why I wrote this book that's why I wrote my second one which I know we'll talk about as well but you know my point is is that the the work that I do is about shedding light on the things that for some reason right and I know we know why right <laughs> for some reason and it's like it's the, the reason is just like power gets maintained when there's silence and you know mm -hmm. and there's lack of information and so you know it's like I want to shed that light I want to shed because 
every time that a little light was shed for me or that a little nugget of wisdom was like my career or my life just catapulted incredibly. It was like, so if it takes just those small nuggets, it's like, imagine what that can do for so many others. Yeah. And I, I really appreciate that about you. You are always, I really love following your posts and reading what you're writing because it really is so genuine and so like, no bullshit, just like, it's, it's true. And, and I think it's really refreshing. I call it corporate talk meets real talk. <laughs> it's like, you need more of that. I really do. I'm going to go all the way yeah. over to when you joined Vice. It was your first C-suite role. Yes. And it was a heck of a time because it was May 2020. Mm-hmm. How the heck did that could Like, how was that transition into you know, you don't, you know, like, you don't know when you're in the fire until after, you know, you like, you know, like take all, take it all of like the little like crispy pieces off of you. Um, listen, it's all of these things also always happen in strange ways. I had, mm-hmm. um, a couple of years earlier had left, um, uh, my job at Viacom and had a year left on my contract that I used to its benefit, to its fullest capacity and just, you know, spent time thinking about what did I want to do with my life, right? I had, I had worked so hard. I had, you know, been following all of these dreams and, you know, and just moving up the career ladder. And I found myself in these moments, this moment of depletion and confusion. And it was also the first time in my entire career where I didn't have a title or a big company next to my name i had just i can't tell you that i started out my career saying that's what i'm gonna do but at this point in my career I realized oh my gosh yeah. i have worked for some of the world's biggest most admired brands and now i'm just daisy oj dominguez <laughs> like, what is you know what does that mean and so i you know i thanks to a good friend who's, who's an executive coach sandra grouchout really really took time to think about what i wanted to do and it was that year that i realized i had been following this dream of becoming a chief diversity officer, right? Of just doing chief diversity officer type work. Mm-hmm. It's like, but I want to do more than that. <laughs> right? Right. And that and that was, you know, it's those moments that frighten us when mm-hmm. we, when we are really allowing ourselves to lean into expansive thinking. And, you know, and for me it was realizing I have been in many ways shaping broader people and culture functions for the better part of my career, but I have always been in this role on the side here that I have to get invited to be able to, mm-hmm. right? That I have to get invited or that once I contribute, I get, I, and then I get put to the side. I was just like, okay, thank you. We'll, we'll take care of it. And I was like, no, I want to dream it and I want to build it. Right? Oh, I no. want to do that. And so that's when I decided that I wanted to be a chief people officer. And, and also I was at point in my career where it was like, you know, like everyone talks about the C-suite, like I'm ready to be there, right? Like that, that's it. And, you know, and funny enough, a lot of headhunters at first were like, that's cute, right? But you've never done the job. <laughs> really? So, like you've worked with some of the best companies in the world. You've proven your, you know, your strength, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, it's like usually people want to hire someone who's on this job, right? This mm-hmm. happens over and over again. Yep. But again, remember throughout my career, I've always challenged that notion. I've always yeah. taken on roles that I had never done before. So part of my hubris was like, yeah, well, that's what I'm going to do. And until if that doesn't happen, then I'm going to, you know, just consult until something happens. And so I was consulting. I was loving everything, all of those things. And then 
COVID hits. <laughs> and like, and then our world, and remember back when we thought like, oh, this is just going to be a couple of months, right? But all of these things started drying up. And I know that right now we're in a point where everyone's so worried about the attacks on DEI. But if you remember, like, right, and I remember pointedly, because my my practice was on people and culture, right? I, I wasn't just a DEI consultant at that right. point. I was already starting to expand my remit, but still that was my expertise. So that's what people were calling me in for. And all of a sudden, like all the talks went down. Like no one, no one was gonna pay yep. for anything. Everybody was cutting. And the first thing you always cut in every, you know, economic slowdown is DNI. And so I started seeing this happen. I was like, oh goodness. And then the vice role came up. And it was a headhunter that I had talked to. He's like, you've been looking for this job. I think this is the one. And and here's why, right? It's media. You've done it. It's, uh-huh. it's also, it's a CEO and a leadership team that is that is open to having a non-traditional CPO. And, and that's, you know, and I'm always deeply grateful for that because that's how I was even considered for this role. And I know the other candidate that was considered for the role. And she was also a non-traditional candidate, right? And so... They were looking for that, and I get the job, and I start on May 15th. <laughs> that week was a huge, massive round of global layoffs. I have been through many layoffs in the past, but I had never steered them yeah. before. So now, even though I was operationally not necessarily steering them as much because the team that had been there was, was you know, had been doing all that prep work, but now I'm the face of it, right? So I'm there. And then two weeks later, George Floyd gets mm-hmm. murdered, and the entire world witnesses it. And we begin this global racial reckoning, and everyone is losing their minds, Marcel. Like all of us were. Mm-hmm. And here's what the, here's what happens. All of a sudden, diversity expertise was valued. <laughs> and yep. so not only was I in this role with this responsibility. But I also had the expertise that was necessary. And I and I had enough, you know, experience and you know and and strength of character to realize I have seen this before. Not this exactly, but I have seen these moments and we're not gonna lose our minds right now. We're gonna hold it together. And we're gonna hold it together based on the principles of what I have always wanted to do. So part of it was all of the worst things happening, but also all of, you know, like the best moments for me to realize, I was like, this is what I've always wanted to do. And now I am finally in a position of power where I could do that. And so, so it was hard. It was painful. It was confusing. It was depleting emotionally and physically. It was um, uncertainty 10X, right? Because we were still figuring out how to navigate operating like this on screens, right? <laughs> it was all of those things. It was you know, the feeling, the being isolated at home. And I thankfully, my my daughter was a teenager at that time. So, um, and had a school that, uh, you know, she goes to private school. They were, they took care of things right away. But, you know, I had friends who had young kids who were struggling, right? I had coworkers, right? We were in the middle of meetings and, you know, our coworkers' little kids are walking around in their diapers behind the scenes. But oh, remember like those days. Oh those, yeah. <laughs> those really uncertain days. Um, and... And it was, there was something in me, like, and I know many people like me, like, when there's chaos, I get, I get calm. And I'm just like, Ooh. okay, I just need to figure out how do we get to the other side? 
And so that was, you know, that was the beginning of my tenure there. And it was leaning on what I already knew, right? It was leaning on professionally, right? And, you know, and, um, and operationally, right? And, and learning, right? Because I was leaning on what I did building, but I was also still, for the first time, running a benefits team running and and by the way doing it globally we were at that point in 24 countries so i had to again i had always operated globally but this was the first time i was like oh but i need to really understand the employment law in each of these countries i need to understand the 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 um health uh, policies in each of these countries because now it's like it's not just the CDC, right? Is what what does the World Health Organization say? What does the local health mm-hmm. organization? Say? So it was also a time of like just super rapid learning for me, yeah. and I operate well in those spaces because I love it, right? I love learning and I love solving things. So every day that's what I was doing. You know, it, it burned me out. It did all of those things. But it that that first I always I call that first year and a half that I was at Vice was one my most productive and I, it was when I wrote Inclusion Revolution, right? People were like learning how to make bread and I was like, I'm writing a book. Um, you know, it was <laughs> when I put all of these all, all of my learnings on paper. It was when I was but I was putting my learnings on paper and then I was every day yeah. practicing it and seeing what worked and what didn't. And that that first year and a half was just truly it was painful and exhausting, but it was there was a beauty to it um, because I could see the best in humans during that during that space. And I could see the impact, the positive, positive impact that our work was having on folks that were struggling through the biggest challenges of their lives and yeah. the responsibility that we had to make things a little better for them. Yeah. I can't imagine like having been in that position at that point. I can see how all of the learnings and all the work that you had done before were so incredibly valid and valuable at that point in time, particularly with racial reckoning, particularly with how people were just like mental health wise wellness like all of these things were coming to a point that it was a boiling point for many yeah for many it really was yeah. it really was and i'm curious because you said you wrote inclusion revolution during that time but i know that the 2024 version came out yeah. recently so yeah. i'm very curious what that difference that you see in the time especially because we keep hearing right like DEI is dead and we could I think you and I could talk about that for hours so I'm not gonna go there yeah and it's <laughs> not it's it's alive and well it's alive and well <laughs> but what are the differences that you that you really were seeing when you yeah. decided to bring it out again in 2024 yeah you know there was there was a part of me and it was you know I was switching publishers and um and and I had already decided that I was gonna write burnout to lit up which is my next book that comes out in September and um, one of the things that I realized was, you know, we're, I, I, this book is so important to me and the essence of it, the practice of it is still the same, right? The employee right. life journey, it is what it is, but we have been through the, you know, the overturn of Roe v. Wade. We have been mm-hmm. through the Supreme Court justice decision on affirmative action. We've been through all of these things. And what my book was about, the last chapter is persist. And I wanted to go back and to remind us because when I was writing this was at a time when there was a bit of the time is now has never right. been better 
let's do this. And I wanted to reframe that and, and say, I was like, we have been through those times. These ebbs and flows happen, but here's what I know. There will always be backlash. There will always be pushback. Freedom is hard won, right? It requires work. Audrey Lord said every, you know, every person way smarter than me has said it for, um, for many, many years. And so I wanted to imbibe the introduction and the conclusion, make it less about that. Um, Cause when I wrote it in, uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, it was a little bit celebratory of like, oh, we are in this moment now where we can do it. And I wanted to just center it back on, there will be moments, all right? There will be moments where we see the wind and there will be moments when we don't, but throughout it all, we need to hold steady because the progress is still what we're aiming for. Change is still possible. So that's that's the 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 book begins and ends with thematically a a it's it's a bit more um present if you will, but I wanted to make it more everlasting than yeah. that I because I realized when I wrote this, I literally like the introduction was just like there's and then the conclusion was like there's never been a better time to do this. I'm counting on and it's like no, this this book has to. I I felt like to honor to honor the um the practices that I shared and the tools. I wanted it to be more consistent with. This is actually how this work works. There's an up and a down, and there's another up gonna come, and there's gonna be another down. And whether you are just starting on this roller coaster or you're a seasoned pro, we have to hold on to this work, and we have to do it in a way that is measured and thoughtful, and and that leans on practice right not on because one of the biggest complaints about DEI is like it's like woo woo kind of stuff that people just right. make up. I'm like no this is hard work and it is meticulous and it is thoughtful and it is like any business practice includes you know KPIs includes yep. you know, includes strategic thinking and vision and you know and and you know and practical roadmaps and and I wanted to honor that and showcase that in the book for any any practitioner or any person interested in doing this work that picks up the book. Yeah, it's fascinating. As you're talking about persistent, and I kind of like, this might be crazy, but it felt a little bit like you wrote this book in a time where the first, you know, when you wrote it originally, in a time where things were really happening quickly and life was just going. And it seems like your life was also just going without a stop yes and then now you're putting out this version which I feel like almost reflects a little bit of where yeah. your life mm -hmm. personally yeah. also has gone mm -hmm. which is not just the go 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 but like okay how do we make this last like let's let's take a moment of pause right it's gonna be okay we're gonna be yeah. we're gonna, we're gonna it's, it's gonna be rough but we're gonna be okay it's fascinating you took what I love. I love that you call it a radical sabbatical. Yes. How did you make that decision? It took me a really long time. It took me a really long time. When you when you enter into these roles, you know that they're they're not forever. So right. I wanted, to, and I had been in enough jobs, right? I have I have transitioned in and out of enough jobs to know that I wanted to um, design my exit from Vice in a thoughtful way and in a way that was reflective of my integrity, my mission, and my values. And so I had been planning my exit for some time, and there were always extenuating circumstances that um, that changed it. And so at the beginning of 2023, I had reached 
kind of the the end point. And it was and it, months earlier, I had gone through severe a severe health crisis. Um, and you know, and I and I think it was you know you can blame it on COVID. I had had COVID, and then I had had recurring bouts of COVID and um, uh, and respiratory illnesses. And that's that's been a challenge of, of my my entire life. I grew up with asthma and all that. But it was you know nearing fifty, and you know and working nonstop and exercising, but not really right. <laughs> Just like living a sedentary life, getting stuff done. Um, and it just led me on these months and months of prolonged, you know, just health deterioration to the point that I was like, just, you know, I, I, I'd say I was like, I wasn't burnt out. I was burnt crispy, right? Like I just didn't have anything in me. And, and we talked earlier in the podcast about the power of support. And I have an executive mm -hmm. coach, um, raw goddess who has, you know, who's really, you know, like my, you know, she's my rock. Um, and so I had been negotiating with raw, like, what was I going to do next? And it was in January of 23 when, you know, I looked at her and I said, I can't do this anymore because I'm no longer showing up as my best self, not just at work, but in my life with my family, with my friends, right? Like I, I, I had missed, you know, I had missed friends, you know, big birthdays and celebrations because I was homesick, right? Like, I'm like, that's that's not the life I want to live. I have a teenager. I want to be vibrant for her, right? I want to I want to show up for her while she's still here because then she's going to go to college soon and, you know, mm -hmm. and, and then she's gone. Um, and so we started drafting what was going to be my exit and it was timed with the end of my contract. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, and to me that felt... Um, it felt like I was honoring my journey in a thoughtful way. I was like, I'm not going to leave now. I, you know, I, I, it, I have a contract, but technically, you know, it, it was an at-will contract, so I could have left at any time. But I was like, yeah. I'm going to leave at the end of my contract, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to close it out, and I'm going to make sure that it's the proper tenure. And then in between those couple of months, you know, economic conditions really worsened for us, um, and we filed for bankruptcy. We, you know, we launched. We had to um, deliver some of the company's largest layoffs, and and I had we had been doing that for for years before that. Fortunately, throughout my tenure, and that was, you know, that that in many ways, while it wasn't my decision, it was my responsibility to carry it out. Um, and so all of that happened within those last couple of months. And as I was, as all of this was happening, it was when I realized, you know. I, I need to take this time, but I don't need to take like a time like I'm walking away. I want to design a time that's going to be nurturing because I am because I recognize I'm depleted. I need nurturing. In many ways, Marisela, I, I for me it was about coming back to myself. Mm. I felt like you know we we give so much and we do so much, and that's you know that's part of human experience. And by the way, no one was asking me. Right. Yes. There were a lot of responsibilities on me. There were a lot of things that I was responsible for. But it was it was I'm I'm the one who would say yes. Right. I'm the one that pushed myself to the limit. So, I, you know, I own that. But I also knew that I was like, like, I can't survive this way. I can't exist this way. And the only way for me to do this is to take a radical sabbatical right and, and it was and it was it had to be a radical experience that got shaped differently and so that's why it was called a radical sabbatical it took me months to decide it took me months to realize also financially how i was going to manage it mm -hmm. um because once there's a bankruptcy then there's no longer any severance or any of those matters so i was just like oh like i'm like you know i'm i'm not gonna have anything right? i'm like i'm gonna walk away and um and there were just a lot of other you know 
a lot of awful things that were happening around that time um, professionally. But but I just took, you know, I, I just kind of walked myself through exit dates. And my original exit date was going to be on May 1st. Then it was May 30th. Then it was July 31st. <laughs> and then finally I had to like give a final date. And so it was August 15th. And, you know, and when that date came, I had already been transitioning for several months. So as one of my colleagues said, I was like, this is the longest goodbye ever. Um, but but I I also had been on the other side of having to manage executives who left abruptly. And I knew I didn't want to do that. Yeah. I knew like despite everything, I was just like, I I that's not how I roll, right? Like that's yeah. not what I'm gonna do to my teams or the people that have to pick up the pieces after me. And yeah. so I wanted to make an exit where I hired my replacement, my team, my team, we had cried through all the goodbyes. By the time I left, they were like ready for me to go. Literally, like, people were just like, okay, yeah, like, vete, yeah. <laughs> it's like, you've been saying it, but that's what I wanted, right? Because, right. and there's this great meme that I saw on Instagram once, you know, like, I am, what is it? I am humble enough to know that I'm replaceable. Um, but cocky enough to know that it will be a downgrade, right? <laughs> and I love, I love that. I love that. <laughs> I was humble enough to know. It's like I can be replaced, like like people. But let me let me help you replace me. Let me right. help you find somebody that can keep it steady, so that it's not a big blip. And let's yeah. not make this a PR disaster. That because mm -hmm. I know because I've been on the cleanup crew over right. and over again. I was like that somebody else has to clean up. Funny enough. In my goodbye note, I said that I was going on a radical sabbatical and leaks advice were just, you know, for the sport of it, right? Like they just happened. And instantly I started getting calls from reporters. Like, what is this? Or like really awful social media memes. Like, like the HR head, like, you know, goes on a radical sabbatical. I hope like all sorts of really bad things were being wished on me. Um, and, you know, but by that point, I was like at such peace that I was just like hanging up on all the reporters. Like, nah, nah. <laughs> like, God. And... And that's what sparked me to write my piece on LinkedIn, which then went kind of viral, which was my announcement of a radical sabbatical because I said, I'm going to own my story. <laughs> I was like, you don't get to tell the story of why the HR lead advice left. You don't get, you know, like you can make up all your stories, but I'm going to own my story. And so I posted that, um, uh, that LinkedIn piece the day after, and I braced myself because Seriously, Marisela, I was just like, I'm going to get so much hate mail and I'm going to get so much because I had been getting such awful social media. Answer. And it was the most beautiful response, surprising response, like people coming out of the like, oh, my God, I took a sabbatical, too, but I didn't tell anybody. Or like, I've been trying to do one for years and I don't know how to do it. It was so beautiful. So that sparked, as you know, a series that I led throughout my sabbatical. And it was it was it was actually the most beautiful start to my sabbatical that I could have ever envisioned. I love that. I think a lot of people are in that boat. I've noticed it after I started this podcast because I started it with like, I I don't know what I'm doing. But I just <laughs> know that I if I don't know what I'm doing, there's many people out there who probably just yes. don't know what they're doing. So, OK, let's talk about it. And in. And I think it's very powerful when you own your story and you put it out there like that. Mm -hmm. I, no, I, I agree. I agree. And and I'll tell you, it was across genders. It was across mm -hmm. professions. It was across industries. But what one of my my deepest realizations was that we we have a collective depletion 
mm-hmm. that is it's like we are we are feeling it holistically we're feeling it in our bones we're feeling it in every part of who we are and it's leading to what we're seeing in young people and in adults um, with rising rates of anxiety. You're seeing it in the rising rates of isolation that um, folks are feeling, again, socially, but also professionally. You're seeing it in the, you know, in in rates of um, medical challenges that people are having that no one ever thought about before. And it's, it's because we're all still healing from this exhaustion of having been through so many changes on top of changes on top of changes. And we all need a break in one way or another, right? If you can take six months the way that I did, beautiful. And I remember my, my European friends were like, was like, just six months? You're not taking a year? And I'm like, all right, like chill, right? Like we all have different, we, we all have different lived experiences. Yeah, but but for someone, it's just maybe a week, right? right. Maybe, but but the point is make it intentional. Don't just, you know, don't just take a break and kind of fall into like the social media, you know, barrage of like, oh, I'm spying and I'm doing this. Make it intentional. And I wanted to make mine intentional. I designed it. I did I did three. Actually, I ended up adding a fourth retreat. I was like, I, I'm going to try these retreats that people do. <laughs> I'm like, what are these things that people do that are called retreats? What does this look like? And I went with my husband. I went with a girlfriend of mine. I went on two with my girl, a girlfriend of mine. I went one on by myself. And, you know, I, I, I went on these moments of like self, self introspection and, and, and nurturing to me, like just, just for me. And then I wrote my book and I wasn't intending to do that. It just, the book just came out. Right. And I couldn't stop writing it. And everyone's just like, oh, you wrote a book during your sabbatical. Weren't you supposed to be resting? It's like, that was my creative outlet for some Our creative outlets are healing, right? Like that's. And I think I don't think for some of us. I think for most of us, writing has been scientifically proven to be healing, right? And that was that was my healing moment: the the writing, the reflection, the sticking through it, right? All of that was part of it. And then there were just also real moments of just like I'm not going to do anything today, or you know I am you know I focused a lot on my health and and exercising, and I've been doing that now for about a year after my big health bout. And so, you know, I'm like, I've got muscles I didn't know I had before, right? I am, you know, I am now doing yoga. I am doing meditation. I'm doing breath work. All of these things that I learned throughout my sabbatical and through the writing of my book, um, all of these pieces, I allowed myself the freedom to do them and and to explore it and, you know, and and to believe like, it doesn't just have to be now. I can, mm-hmm. I can these practices into my life but I have this beautiful gift right now of being able to explore this deeply and you know and that's 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 where I've been the last six months did you always have an end date for no I didn't well people often ask me that I you know I assumed that at the beginning of the year um I would start Mm -hmm. I, I, what I what I told a lot of my colleagues was like I'm not I'm not looking for a new job. Talk to me at the beginning of the year. So that was right. a little bit of my framework. I'm like, let's talk at the beginning of the year. That's you know that's when I think I'll, I'm going to have my head there. But I I I didn't want to jump like I've done throughout most of my career right. from one year to the next without giving myself, giving my heart and my head the space to really think expansively about okay, what's this next career move? I'm 50 now. I've been 
you know, I don't need to prove anything else, but I still, I still have a lot to give. I still have right. a lot to do right. um, and contribute in this world. Um, and, and I just, I need to get my, my body and my soul and my spirit back in alignment so that I can figure out what, where do I go next so that, so that I can do it fully, right. Without, without feeling the regret of what I didn't get to do. Right. Like, I, you know, there's there, the, yeah. the exhaustion, the, you know, or even those negative feelings that we feel, whether we like it or not of, you know, just cause you're so angry and tired. Like most of the times, you know, when I would be angry and tired, people are like, nobody did that to me. Like, why am I angry? Right? Like, I just, like, I don't, like, I did that to myself. Like Daisy, stop. Right. Like stop being angry at that person. But, but you need to pause and reflect to think on that. And I hadn't had any time to pause and reflect because I was just doing yeah. and solving it literally every morning, waking up, afraid to open my inbox because I had, I, I was just worried about the next crisis that I needed to solve. Right. And, and that was, that was my go-to for months and almost years at a time. And I needed, I needed to just, I needed to pause that. Well, I'm so happy you did that because I think it's, and that you did it publicly because I think it's very powerful and I think it's very, very important. Thank One you. last question. Yes. What was the most surprising thing that you learned about yourself while you were on a radical, on your sabbatical? Oh my goodness. I love that question. I don't know if it was, it was surprising because it's, it's, I've known this about myself and it's been an area that I've had to work on for a really long time. Um, but it's, you know, I, I know that I'm very impatient. <laughs> I, want, <laughs> I want things yesterday, right? And, you know, it drives my husband crazy because once I make my mind to do something, I'm like, I gotta do it because I just have to do it now because I'm, I'm impatient. And and I often associated that with the doing of things. Yeah. And um and one of my re I call it it's kind of a re aha moment. I've known this was well, that, like that my my impatience. I had been impatient not just with myself but with other humans. Hmm. And and that that caused depletion for all of us. Um, and and when I was, I felt so deeply responsible for the humans that I was responsible for taking care of, um, for the humans that I was responsible to coach and support and partner with. Um, but in my exhaustion and my depletion and in my natural inclination towards impatience, I had grown impatient with the very people that I, I was responsible for, uh, or that I was, um, engaged in the work with. Um, and, and it's, it's putting up a mirror. I always say this, right? It's like, it's holding up a mirror and saying like, it's like, just chill Daisy. <laughs> like just it's because it's not always who people are, but what people are experiencing in the moment that mm -hmm. you experience with them. Right. And so, so many times we, we ascribe these, um, this meaning to who somebody is because they didn't meet you where the, you know where you wanted to be met. They didn't answer you the way you wanted them to answer you. They didn't you know they they said something that hurt you, and it's not about them. It's about the circumstances that they're living in, and it's mm -hmm. being able to pause and recognize that and take take a look at that that allows us to really really dig into empathy and connection and build that shared understanding, which is fundamentally what I think is missing in yeah. our workplaces and our DEI practices is building that shared understanding. And so it was recognizing the part I had played in not building that shared understanding. It's also not about building shame for myself. It's about witnessing and experiencing and saying, okay, this is, I know this about me. And so when that is happening is what are the practices that I need to lean on? 
for me, it's more breath work than meditation. I'm not a good meditator. I, yeah, I have too many monkeys in my head. I, you know, so, you know, it's like breath work, breath work really calms me and, and centers me. And so now whenever I find myself like, what, where, you know, where's that, where's that energy coming from? It's just like, like just take a few breaths. Take a rest and and really and and usually Marisa, and I kid you not because I know this sounds very woo woo. <laughs> but usually after a couple of minutes, I can see what's happening so much more clearly. I believe that. I believe that. Mil gracias. Ay, un placer. So much fun. Thank you for listening to Shit. I just quit my job. If you like the show, please rate, review, and subscribe. It means the world to me. Please share with your friends. Thank you.